everyone, and welcome to Light Conversations on Trauma podcast. Bringing conversations around hardship into the light. It's me, Peter Middleton, here, and I'll be hosting this podcast. This is a space for intimate and empathetic chat around trauma, big T or little t. We have regular sections to this podcast, so look out for them. And each episode, I'll be joined by a guest who will share their unique perspective. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome to Light Conversations on Trauma podcast. I'm sat here today, virtually, digitally, with Pierre Azam. Hi. Hi. Hi, Pierre. Welcome. Thank you. I am. I say this all the time, but I'm super excited and inspired to have you here. And I know that we talk a little bit um, in energetics as well. Whenever we talk, um, I got a really warm, lovely pulsing kind of feeling in my chest right now yeah thank you (laughs) that's wonderful (laughs) it's good to be here great so i wanted to ask you what's your vibe yeah Mm. so my vibe today is really full of heart and gratitude so i feel grateful to be here and Grateful to you for cultivating a forum for open discussion like this one. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Just wanted to take that in. I <laughs> just wanted yeah, to take that, that in. Yeah. yeah. We can all use a little bit of the warmth. Oh, gratitude. Yeah. Ah, there you go. We could, we could do with that. We could. Yeah. All right, lovely. So the first section you picked is riding the waves of change. What does that mean to you, my friend? Yeah, riding the waves of change. So that one really struck me in large part because, of course, everybody is riding a tidal wave of change right now (laughs) in the midst of global pandemic. Mm. Uh, But my biggest wave right now is largely in changing careers. Mm. So I'm um, based in South Florida, USA. I'm I trade a physician and psychiatrist and practiced academic medicine for about 15 years uh, before pursuing training as a professional coach. And I've worked in the coaching realm now for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last two months, I've made the transition from a full-time career in academic medicine to entrepreneurship and professional coaching. And so. 
I started two parallel practices and I work with men at times of major life change as well as physicians. So my big wave is leaving a pattern of high structure, of limited autonomy, plenty of external markers for success in being a physician to kind of building my own groove. It's got a skeletal framework that I've got full autonomy and what feels like relatively few external markers of success, which feels sometimes like, holy shit, a massive way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? In the change, there is de a definite middle phase between yeah. one life. You shut the door on the old life. You have to step <laughs> into it, right? You got to go for it. Yeah. Um, but it can, yeah, that sort of ex no external markers of success can be. Yeah. And that's, for me, felt like a first mm. sort of finding a group. I think I've always kind of fit into a very well-delineated groove with clear markers. They were never necessarily made by me, but... Mm. Uh, but they were very, very clear. And so it was easy to stay in a groove. And now creating my own sort of life and way of being means that I get into the groove and fall out of the groove <laughs> um, rather easily. And that part has been, it's been uh, unique. And so, right. yeah, that's felt really important around riding the waves of change. Yeah. Yeah, that, what that brings up for me is that, you know, it, it strikes me as a kind of initiation phase, right? It's, yeah. it's like we go through it in adolescence, but that, that literally is us forming our self, like our brain forms. And we step into a very like rigid kind of societal role because that's what's expected of us. And pretty much that's all we can manage at that point, <laughs> uh, I think. Yeah. I feel, yeah. But this is an yeah. interesting kind of similar phase, but we have like, we both have like consciousness that we can apply to this. I mean. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. It I can think, work both ways, right? <laughs> what's that? It can work both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. It is sort of like being in adolescence again. Like it's interesting that you, you bring that up, it sort of makes me think about my own childhood and adolescence and mm. how that helped me to create a groove in the past or to settle into grooves in the past. And I think a lot of that was informed by um, trauma, my, maybe my own, but also secondary trauma. So it's just a bit about um, yeah. my own history. I grew up in Texas and um, in a family of Palestinian refugees and Lebanese immigrants. Mm. My mother grew up in the Gaza Strip, my dad in Beirut. I see. And both families left the Middle East in wartime, really in the 1970s. Oh. And they moved to the States. They brought with them very, I'd say, traditional paradigms of thinking. Uh, and for being. And really, it wasn't until later in my life that I realized the extent to which their own transitions, their own exposures to political violence, being uprooted, to trauma, informed their lives. 
Yeah. And secondarily, mine. Right, right. And that's so, really interesting. Yeah. 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 I think it's driven a lot of the way that I navigate identifying myself and what I do. Right. And maybe that's sort of secondary trauma is also compounded by primary challenges within uh, my family and at home. Mm-hmm. Parents struggled with one another and argued quite often. My memories of childhood were not particularly happy ones. Um, okay. And so I watched my family maneuver, um, my father's infidelities, felt his intermittent absence from home. And I seemed almost extra aware of their losses and their struggles. And we both sort of talked about being empaths and probably having been so at a pretty early age. So sure. I imagine this, a young Peter was running around feeling everybody's pain. Yeah. Probably everybody's joy as well. And that oh, was for sure. Yeah, uh, for sure. Very much my my experience too. But it yeah. also um, defined my own sense of responsibility, how I might feel responsible for bringing happiness or mm. pride to my family. And oh, messages that's a good I point. From, yeah, messages I got from them about how to do that were really clear. Sometimes they were covert. Right. But they were always um, clear. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And kind of, yeah, speaks to that kind of aspect of whatever we're socialized in. um, Yeah. You know, becomes us. And until we can sit there in that mirror and have a good look at it. Um, it's just going to come through unconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it comes through unconsciously for each of us in slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. Maybe many shared ways too. I think one of the things that I love most about this idea of light conversations among a topic that it can be so heavy <laughs> is that it's so connective yeah, those of us who've experienced trauma have, even if it's in very, very different ways, often get the message, a similar message. And for me, that was hide, hide shortcomings, hide pains. That's hide a deep one. The facade. Yeah, that's a deep groove for sure. And I, I, I really respect that you brought that into this space because it's, it is very, um, it's a very um, common aspects to to someone who's been through trauma even just the sense that some of the feelings that you can get after trauma are really scary and big and and going through trauma also affects the nervous system you know sometimes you can't you can't hold those feelings in your nervous system that's why sometimes trauma survivors are very volatile in a way like yeah so yeah, it can be scary on the outside and, and I really, I thank you for um, acknowledging the, the, the title in that way. I do a lot, I do a lot of reading and I've embraced like Taoism um, as a concept and I just recognize that, you know, everything is within the one 
like all aspects. And so I wanted to create a space and I feel like it kind of moved through me in many aspects, but I created a space where light conversations could be had around a, a very heavy concept like trauma yeah. because the, my experience of psychotherapy is that if you visit these things um, little and often, then then you can recontext you can you have the ability, let's say, to recontextualize it. But if you don't, if you don't visit yeah. them, and that can be fine, like you might not be ready. But if you if you can find a safe space to visit them, then that's the healing path for sure. Yeah, recontextualizing them seems important. Yeah, seems important just identifying or cultivating your own sense of identity. For me, that certainly fits. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting part of the trauma journey is that you disidentify with yourself in many aspects, right? Absolutely. It's a little, it's a little different than like through meditation, I've learned to use disassociative memory, right? And that's a good thing. But, but disassociation is something completely different, like the trauma journey, right? Yeah, for certain, for certain. I think I've noticed just in my own experience that that dissociation, that sort of movement through time and space without necessarily feeling very much mm-hmm. and just kind of keeping my head down and focusing on the end path, which for me felt very much like an express train to achievement. I think um, looking back, I can boil down almost all of the positive reinforcement that I've ever gotten in my life to that one word. And so I put my all into it and um, that made me feel most stable, most loved. Yeah. And so I kept going and I, you know, I, got some wonderful schooling and trained at some very prestigious places and became the first doctor, first physician in my family. Oh, well done. Um, and helped to do some really amazing things. But at the end point, um, for me, a sort of achievement, um, felt empty. Mm. I guess there felt it felt like there was something missing. Yeah. Clarity or mission, heart. Right. Yeah. So writing my wave of change kind of feels like leaving a paradigm of very externally reinforced success. Okay. And sort of following my own path. Oh, so that's flipped on its head then from what you said, because now you don't have any (laughs) for the time being. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the universal lesson right there. (laughs) That's right. Be be happy with no external success. Yeah. (laughs) Not forever, obviously. I wish that for you, but um, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. But those are um, not always the most valuable or the most mm -hmm. authentic. Yeah, and I just wanted to say that through the men's group work, through Healing the Shame That Binds You, the book, it yeah. says, you know, um, abuse stories like really internalize shame, obviously. And one of the biggest aspects of 
of shame is super achievement, right? You, yeah. you, become, you want to, you want that validation security. And it's almost like riding the waves of change where that is what you had to do to get through that situation. Right. So we can just celebrate that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was, that was the journey to get you out of that. And now you're yeah. in this bit. Yeah. So, yeah. And in retrospect, I think, Peter, um, I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude for having, having ridden through the tougher parts of that wave, because mm. it might have just been easier to stay, stay on course and not, maybe not having ridden the big wave. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize I recognize the courage that that takes to yeah. step out of that path and to take hold of that uncertainty and be like willing to take on your your heart's journey I want to call it yeah I appreciate that I appreciate that I, there's just so much value there I mean even if it comes at the sort of cost of the externalities the similar the sort of similar path or the recognized path rather um it comes at a massive gain which is being able to cultivate authentic connections Mm. helping people to thrive at times of great need that feels so important even if it you know even if it's not even if it meets no external markers of success yeah just feeling particularly grateful for that and for you, because I, I, I think being able to cultivate relationships like this, um, for me, may not have happened had I not ridden the wave. Right. I really, I agree. And I echo that sentiment for sure. Yeah. It's like, it would have been impossible for me to hold a like relational connection like we have. And yeah, yeah we've, we've connected over the last uh, couple of months, isn't it? So, you know, a couple of times that we've talked and there's already really deep energetic connection and we share so many like good jokes and, you know, parts of the story. So it's, there is definitely more on the other side of that, that uncertainty for sure. Yeah. I think there's true joy, true fulfillment. Yes. Lovely. All right. Next one. We can just finish it there, maybe. <laughs> no. That's good. Looking forward to more. Um, that was, yeah, that was really sort of deep essence stuff. Love it. Yeah. So, next one you picked was What's My Inner Voice Saying? Oh, that's a full body, yes. Yeah, that reminds me of something. I like that. What'd you do that for? Oh, they're going to hate me. Be loving. What are they going to think? Oh, I feel so. Mm, that's tasty. Be kind. Hey, what's your inner voice saying? What does that mean to you, Pierre? Oh, my. My oh, inner yeah. voice is very loud. It's a journey. <laughs> that one. Yeah. And I guess to ride the tidal wave of change, mm. I feel like I've had to get very, very clear on what my inner voice has been saying. Mm. And mostly my inner voice, like many inner voices, uh, is very good at telling lies. Mm. So they're lies that I've told myself over and over again, and they're very much in line with the 
the sort of voice of seeking achievement and validation and not mm. necessarily investing in knowing myself, creating my own sense of identity. There are lies like um, I'm valuable because I achieve or the um. more X I earn, the better I am, whether it be degrees or money or ranks or titles. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it was this sort of inner voice that has been saying all along that other people's needs are more important than my own. I cultivating see. a facade is more important than displaying my core, particularly when my core doesn't feel neat or clean or organized or successful sort of quote unquote. Good. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Right. The success you could redefine that word as, you know, authentic or something, you know, able to actualize yourself in each moment. Yeah. I'm interested in the word lies. Lies, yeah. What does that mean to you? Like, I I haven't thought about that before. Yeah. Using that word. um, They don't feel that true to my heart. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. My... uh, Oh, I think, no, I think yeah. <laughs> you just had a moment. Yeah, you had a little more clunk there. I, uh, <laughs> That's good. I, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think the my inner voice can be pretty mean to myself, mm-hmm. quite harsh, and. Um, and I think if I spoke to other people in the way that I speak to myself, I would be um, I would be quite ashamed of myself. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah. And that's such a consistent thing that that I hear everywhere I go. Yeah. Just like, and I do I do think it was useful for me to use that as like a analogy while I was growing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Just like, okay, if I said this to someone, like a stranger or like someone I love, like how would I re- expect them to react to that? And, if, yeah. and I agree, like loads of my voice is like, you idiot. Like uh, worse than that, obviously, like it's just, yeah, you know, it's just like, yeah. And they talk, you know, they t- talk in the men's group about discipline, don't they, in that sense, like, yeah. And I've been taking an inner parenting course, which has been really fascinating. Um, yeah. They talk about authoritative parenting, which is the only version of parenting that's actually empowering to a child. The other ones are useful or like not useful, but you can use them, right? Yeah. And they'll work to an extent. I mean, of course, they're going to like authoritarian. I think the other one's passive. Yeah. And there's one more that I can't remember. But yeah, that authoritative version of parenting. It's like children need boundaries to push against, to, to learn who they are, yeah. right? I think it's yeah, the same, I wonder same how with that, ourselves. How so. that allows you to speak to yourself in a way that gives you authority and love. Yeah, I think in the sense that it's like, I've been learning a lot about holding space recently. 
um, with the podcast. I mean, like yeah. doing 13 episodes of this kind of podcast will, will teach me like this crash course in holding space for sure. Most definitely. But um, I can really see it coming through in this inner parenting work is, you know, if I can, if I meet the, the child part of myself that's saying, you know, they don't love me or they're going to leave me or, you know, and it's in those wordings that we, because it comes from our experience, right? It's like how I internalized my insecure environment. It's not even like any of the behavior that they actually used is anything that matters is what I took from that. And um, sometimes I meet, you know, these teenage versions of myself who have like internalized some kind of bullying or really kind of harsh, critical ways of speaking. And I have, I kind of, the way that I deal with that is to say, um, I don't talk to myself in that way anymore. Like I appreciate your voice, but that's not how I talk to myself anymore, you know? And I think, you know, the more we can cultivate this kind of kind, loving, in internal voice the more like we get to integrate our experience of life and and then you know that everyone talks about the space to respond that's where the space to respond comes from right because mm. they still show up and they're still like me they're still always yeah. part of me you know there's still that guy who's like oh well fuck everyone you know for example you know like if you if you don't feel the way i feel then fuck you like that's still a person that i have inside me that comes up like when my needs don't get met but i just don't i don't listen to that part of uh, i listen but i don't act on that part of me yeah it strikes me you approach it from a place of awareness and presence compassion yeah but not and a place of recognition or what is the baby and what is the bathwater in this case the baby maybe telling you to or trying to keep you from harm sure sure the bathwater maybe all of the criticism harshness that comes along with that yeah. And I think one of the most wonderful things about engaging these parts, I think a, a big part of this work is in internal family systems work, mm. is recognizing that they're there, that they are all speaking, sometimes trying to communicate things to us at unusual times, unexpected times, sometimes all at once. And so being able to engage each one and appreciate where it may be coming from. What is the inner voice that tells that says, you know, uh, fuck all, fuck off. Mm. What is that voice trying to say? Maybe the loudest voice, but it may not be the voice that you want to act intentionally upon. Mm-hmm. And so being able to give it space and allow it to communicate what's important. Mm-hmm. And then help you to, it's helped me certainly to then identify where that voice is just being harsh mm-hmm. and how to recognize 
the other voices that might be in there, voices that may be more compassionate, mm-hmm. while also honoring the voice that may be a, a crusty old man. Uh-huh. I feel like I, a lot of my inner voices are crusty old men. They're sort of curmudgeon that tell me I'm not good enough. I'm that not doesn't smart enough. I'm not right. eligible enough on my own. Got you. And there's there's so much a part of the human journey, aren't there? Those yeah. ones. Yeah. I'm curious, like uh, have you drawn that crusty old man? <laughs> Do you have a cartoon of him? <laughs> uh no, but I, I really should. I think a lot of my uh yeah. I I've only I feel like I've only very recently started to tap into that that old man mm. or those old men. Mm. I've never drawn them before, but I have visions of them that, you know, sort of uh, uh, smacking me with a cane. Yeah, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it would be fascinating to draw them. Yeah, I would, wouldn't it? They're actually quite a lot smaller than they sound or than they seem. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's like the energetic charge around certain experiences, right? They're all yeah. sort of words, um, but they hold different charges. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Hmm. I think um, hmm. I think you've given me some ideas about how to <laughs> engage my my inner my inner old man really drawing them out. But I think one of the things that comes up quite often um, in my work in coaching, especially people who experience very um, difficult life events or have been traumatized or criticized quite a lot growing up, is that they find their inner voices, especially the critical ones, tend to be very, very loud, mm. um, often in case hold away mm. and often rather small and dark. Mm. Mm. And, um, and it's rare to be able to engage those inner voices from a place of compassion and light. Mm. Um, but it's almost like uh, you know, it's almost like a vampire. When you shine light on this thing, it sort of it goes away, or it, it yeah. loses its power in some way. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think I think those stories are so, so they've survived so well because of that reason. They're so yeah, they're so like so essential. They've they've got all the the right myths in there, the right yeah, stories. For sure. for sure. And there's they're scary. It's scary mm-hmm. to shine light on them. They're scary looking. Yeah. And I think when you do shine light on them, I my experience has been that you've recognized that I've recognized those voices that tell me I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um they're not very powerful after all, but I've given them a lot of power. Yes. Yeah, and I just want to acknowledge how much energy and kind of pain that can be, like the painful that can be, like from my own experience of when you first open up a trauma, hopefully you're doing it in a supported environment, professional as well. Like 
it's it's really painful like those first couple of times you'll have bodily sensations you know you'll you'll bring stuff back to you so that's that's worth acknowledging yeah have you drawn your your (laughs) no i i haven't i should i think everyone should do that that would be amazing if we all did that right yeah some some people give them names like silly names But I'm I'm interested in especially in trauma, I'm interested because yeah, often we we build parts of our personality and psyche that are there to just survive, right? And that's very yeah. essential. It's like extremely exempt, essential. But then as as we heal and grow, you it's like a weird thing, right? You have to separate that survival self with your essence heart self, right? And that can be that can be super confusing to like separate which one is which um i guess yeah. the more, i guess the more you do it the more the more aware you will become agreed agreed hmm. fascinating i think to keep going yeah yeah uh, it's right. a great it's a great little bell i think to the um, those voices remain even after the threat is gone. Mm. And so often recognizing that we're not in the space mm. to okay. necessarily need those voices in which to survive in a state of threat. I see it's hard or impossible to even recognize that that we can cultivate a new script. And so much of that is just is getting the permission to, to do that in a place of safety. Yeah. And kind of cultivating compassion and grace for ourselves. I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the most challenging parts of, Mm. inner work period but certainly one of the most challenging areas for work through trauma yeah Yeah. i think a big piece of that is forgiveness too you know so many times you're like oh why didn't i do this why didn't i do that it's well okay well you you weren't in this space that's why you you did what you had to do yeah whatever that was not in the space um that not in a space that you would demand of anybody but somehow we demand things of ourselves yeah that even as a child we should have yeah whatever we should have been able to overcome or escape or do something differently to change the course of time and events and it's not something that we would normally, it's not an expectation that we would normally create for other people. Yeah. Somehow we do that for ourselves. Yeah. We tell ourselves that even as a child, I should have been able to. Right. And of course not. Yeah. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So many things about children, like adults going, projecting back onto their child, like expressing like, oh, I don't I, you know, I wish I didn't have to do that or 
we forget how kind of helpless children are sometimes, right? Yeah. Someone said, yeah, yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah. Many of us yeah. get traumatized in adulthood and think we should have known better or yes. done better or done differently. And, yeah. And, mm. and we're hardly getting forgiveness or compassion from others and mm. not giving it to ourselves. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just yeah. that speaks to me of having just meeting someone on their consciousness level, you know, like wherever they are on their journey, you know, is so essential because if you're not meeting them there, then you're not meeting them at all. Yeah. You're meeting yourself. Yeah. Most um, definitely. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Next. Okay. Next one. We say so you picked that's deep. That's deep. That's deep. Yes. I thank you for picking this one because I love it. <laughs> it's a good one. I yeah. love this one. Um, and I alluded to you what I was interested in delving into in this space, mm-hmm. which was the power of music. Oh, and, wonderful. Um, and so just to be very clear here, in advance of opening up this discussion around music, I have no history of creating music myself, mm-hmm. but a very long history of being moved by and driven by music like so many of us and um like so many of us i find myself connecting music very very strongly with specific events in my life with vacations with the city in which i first heard a tune or the room in my childhood home where i first heard uh listened to a cassette Mm -hmm. um I guess I'm dating myself there. Was I had ca- I had life. cassettes when I was a kid. Cassettes are great. Yeah, I had them. Yeah, there's a certain quality. Actually, I recorded an album with a band um, yeah. two years ago, and we used magnetic tape. Like it wasn't cassette tape, but it, there's a yeah. certain quality to tape. You, uh, you can't, you can't find it in digital music. Yeah, I mm. miss cassettes very much. I don't know why, but I think it's just. I think it's just a positive, uh, sort of positive association to music from childhood and therefore cassettes. Right. Got you. Um, but lately I found myself um, spending more time outdoors, running or walking, exploring my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been able to revisit history, um, my history, I guess, by listening to music. And we know that music is really heavily tied to our emotions and through the workings of our limbic system, parts of our brains like the amygdala and hippocampus and thalamus that are most involved in um, gauging emotional balance and memories. And for me in my training and career, I've been long interested in the limbic system, kind of fascinated by it really. 
Mm. Um, mostly through mentorship and working with neuroscientists historically who've spent their lives understanding or trying to understand. And I say try to understand because there's so much that is not and probably won't be understood in our lifetimes, much as I think we like to try to understand our nervous systems. I think mm. they often, um, they can get the better of us. And that comes across a lot in music. Mm. And in trauma, the same networks are implicated. Many mm. researchers focus on the role of the limbic system in driving the experiences of panic and fear that are really exquisitely connected to threat. Right. Yeah. That gave me a lot so, of solace, yeah. actually. Sorry, just to yeah. interrupt for a sec. It gave me a lot of solace to know that when I when I yeah. came across it, because I would have these moments where I'd check out, um, rationally check out, you know, and just be in panic. And yeah, like it doesn't happen any anymore, thankfully. Um, but there were definitely moments in my life where I've definitely been driven by that limbic kind of panic. Yeah. And then you come back around and you kind of think, well, okay. It's almost like what they describe as a blackout in drinking. You know, you're, you're having, you're having experiences, but you, you're not formulating memories from those. Yeah. 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 It's kind of wild. You know, there, there are, they are, experiences that are super closely tied to fear and they're driven by limbic associations. So mm. many of those are evolutionary. There are the things that have helped to keep us alive in the context of threat. Mm. So we hear a loud noise, we see flashing lights, we feel sudden movements and we don't have to think too much. Our, our sort of, um, the cortical networks in our brains don't have to process too much in order for us to respond really quickly, emotionally, and from a motor standpoint with almost immediate uncontrollable activity. Mm -hmm. Our endocrine systems, our hormones respond in a way that is threat yeah for any logical reasoning yeah that reminds me that there's a network an ancient network in the brain isn't there from emotional straight to limbic that yeah. gets activated in those states it literally shuts down the prefrontal cortex because it takes a lot of energy to process absolutely so, so you and conserve energy time. and yeah time too yeah, yeah time those milliseconds so, yeah mm. so there are multiple, and you know, the, what's interesting about our brain is that our brains, I guess, in general are, um, there are many things, but one of the most interesting is that our brains have had to evolve without, without ever having the luxury of stopping. Mm. So there are many loops and networks that underlie common experiences hmm. and so on the one hand the experience of seeing something slither or scurry down 
and that would freak most of us out before we know exactly what it is that we're seeing because we've had enough enough evolutionarily happen in our brains to respond very quickly based on prototypes of threats. I see. I see. Before we're able to see whether what we perceive to be a snake is mm. in fact a snake. Yeah, I was having a talk with my mum the other day as well about yeah. she has like these really bright yellow flowers in her garden. I was uh-huh. like, wow, look at those. And she said to me, yeah, I don't, uh, I was a little bit wary because when you have bright yellow flowers in your garden, everyone always says like you go towards the yellow. Like everybody always is drawn towards the yellow. Yeah. And whereas we can, we can perceive more green than any other color because yeah. that's where we were, you know, in the, that's where it was developed. But the yellow is a predator. It, wow gets drawn yeah. too so it's huh. interesting isn't it that's really interesting yeah yeah and so we're i guess drawn to or veer away from certain features of something we experience and so i've worked with a lot of individuals who dealt with trauma and um and those experiences often involve a heightened sense of fear to what might have otherwise been a very innocuous stimulus. So, right. um, for example, um, I feel like I've heard this one commonly, and it's not quite commonly shared, but mm-hmm. people who may have experienced physical or sexual trauma on a windy day in autumn might re-experience that trauma years or decades later at just even the faintest sound of leaves rustling. Mm-hmm. And so even when the threat is gone, even when they're otherwise perfectly safe, um, that feeling, that experience is really powerful. Mm. And it's not an experience that requires logical reasoning right um you might be safe perfectly safe not in any harm's way um but re-experience the fear even relive elements of the trauma with just the faintest experience the faintest association and i think one of the things that i've noticed over the last few weeks has been the sheer power of music really years, decades, but have appreciated a lot more in the last few weeks because I've had some of the luxury of reliving experiences, positive experiences and sometimes negative ones through music. And that is the power of music to do the very same. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I suppose not many people know, but I spent 10 years being a sound engineer in live music. So I have yeah. vast, vast experience in this area. And we could probably talk about this for two years with me, um, which yeah. I, I hope we will. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, that's an invitation, but for now. Well, um, absolutely, because yeah. I would love to talk about it. I'm it's, curious how it impacted yeah. your capacity to experience emotion. Yeah, for sure. Emotionality couple of things come up just 
very recently, like when, like random example, but when Mumford and Sons came out, I was working yeah. in the music industry and something about them, like they were so popular, but it wasn't that like something about them turned, turned off for me. Like I just immediately, I had these like, um, just voices in me. Like, uh, I don't like them. Like I didn't yeah. even explore it. I've returned to them recently and I just love their, all of their music. I love all of their albums. And I think it's because what they're talking about is where I'm at in my life right now. Yeah. And back then in listening and embracing that music, I would have had to admit that I was lost, angry, isolated, hurt, pained, all of those things. Yeah. And so I think my experience of being a life sound engineer, I mixed a lot of concerts in a lot of big and small places. I used to work in London in tiny bars, which I really appreciated in, 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 in a different way, but I've done, I've worked in arenas up to 80,000 people. Yeah. And it's just the connection. The connection seems to be like precognitive, you know, it's like a vibration, like music is vibration. And there just seems to be this thing that transcends boundaries with music. If, if you go to like a musical experience, um, you're there with the crowd and it can work both ways, but they really, it's transcendent really. You know, it's, it's part of a ritual that, that people tap into, you know, and that's really important. Mm. But uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it seems to, I don't know any of the science or anything about this, but it seems to really, from my own experience of Reiki and, and feeling the energetics of my emotion in my body. Yeah. I think it really ties together that energetic experience that we have. Uh huh um with memories and and things of that nature yes yes yeah. several i think several musicians neuroscientists physicians um, lovers of music have identified much of what you've described I mean, like the science behind it is fascinating it's not entirely um, it's not entirely clear, as is most things related to neuroscience, very unclear. I think for me, it's historically yeah. what's driven me to to the practice and study of neuroscience, just not knowing. But mm. the vibratory sense is so not, and obviously it's cognitive, it's a part of the the neural experience, but... Okay. It defies words or language. You don't need to speak the language of the vocals mm. in order to feel the music. Yeah. Uh, in order to feel a certain way in hearing a sound. Right. And like that's really what feels most powerful to me. So it's interesting you mentioned bringing up um, musical experiences from the past. Mm. And um, and 
if we can keep going into the yeah. final 15 minutes, absolutely, I would love to be able to speak a, a bit about this and, and hear your own experiences around this as well. Um, yes. Because I get really, really curious about, about your experience. My experiences of late mm. have been in revisiting the early to late 1990s. Mm. And that is... Some bangers in there. What's that? There's some bangers in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think um, I, as, a, as an adolescent kid, I was and still am fascinated by the vocals of um, the late Dolores O'Rourke from the Cranberries. Oh. And uh, I think mm. uh, the music... And I, I hadn't listened to the Cranberries in maybe, I don't know, over a decade, but suddenly something um, something mm. sparked interest yeah. in a way that I uh, don't fully understand in the way that most things musical happen. They just kind of happen. Yeah. Um, and That's so incredible. I sort of revisited adolescence through the lilting music of Dolores O'Rourke. <laughs> wow, she's haunted me. She's captivating. Yeah, totally. she really is. She absolutely is absolutely captivating. And it doesn't take much, right? So it just takes mm. a couple of notes. But yeah. For me, a couple of notes of songs that I recall from the past spark memories of being fascinated with the troubles in Northern Ireland, with being... Yeah. Um, just fascinated by um, political violence in in a very sort of compassionate way and feeling like there's so much of the world that hurts mm. almost unnecessarily and that's captured in her music. Mm. And, and it struck me as I was just sort of re-experiencing this that it was... Um, those experiences were, as you said, they're not very higher order cognitive. They are very vibratory. They're very um, visceral. Mm. And um, and they are reminders of how powerful our experiences activators even of trauma um can mm. be mm. their reactions of our bodies our brains our emotions um, they're immediate they're powerful they defy reasoning mm. um we don't have to explain in a hundred words why we get moved by the soundtrack the theme from mission impossible or yeah. um why you know uh, the sound of Billie Holiday's voice makes us for me mm. certainly creates goosebumps. Yeah. Um, but it does. And yeah. that's the experience very much of that's, that's very much the nature of re-experiencing and trauma. Mm. And I think hmm, there's so much of that that is judged by ourselves and by other people as yeah. being somehow wrong mm. or um, cognitively deficient or yeah. um, Is it, illogical. Yeah. Not, and, and, the, 
it strikes yeah. me that that is there's such like we all experience the massive effect of just a couple of notes of something we love or something we abhor and we mm. don't have to necessarily explain it and that's often the experience of people who get triggered or re-experience trauma yeah yeah two 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 reflections come to me there yeah. like Peter Levine's work on somatic experiencing is is dancing. That's dancing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's just what it is. Totally. Right. Yeah. So I've worked at so many. I've worked and enjoyed a lot of raves in my time. <laughs> they were fun, <laughs> and um, they were absolutely healing experiences. Absolutely healing experiences. I just let myself mold in like dissolve into that crowd you know and just the, the amount of connections that you have both to the music and the people in the crowd it's weird because and also like i i was a huge fan of like i mean i've seen a lot of different genres of gigs but one of them springs to mind like tool for example yeah. do you know tool yeah. Yeah, yeah like it's an absolute experience it's an experience yeah, i bet it was you know, it's a and then just I'm thinking about all the ki- all the gigs I went to as a kid, and I jumped around as a sweaty mess, and like my holding my shoes in the air, and you know, like I think on one show, like a Tame Impala show, I remember at the Roundhouse, I was actually about 24 at the time, and I just I did the same thing. I just I was there with a friend of mine, and he was there with a someone he didn't know too well. I think it was yeah. di- cleverly disguised as a as a date. Uh-huh. Um, but i um i kind of said to them look guys i can't not dance to this music so are you coming and they were like no we're good we're good i'm gonna we're gonna stay here so i was like cool i'll see you afterwards and they said halfway through the show they just saw me with one of my shoes in the air like dancing (laughs) (laughs) i'd completely lost the other shoe (laughs) and um those kind of experiences you can't make them up you know they're not part of your like social construct and the second reflection that brings me to is we're also afraid of being insane you know yeah that's one of the biggest shame points of our society and obviously it came from kantian theory and descartes you know like i think therefore i am it's like okay what if i don't think then i'm not and that's like holy, you know. Yeah, that is holy. <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny, but, uh, but um, you're right. Where I think we're a um, society, and I can comment on this definitely from just the like um, the medical community and the mental health community. We're a society that very much overvalues thought. Mm-hmm as opposed to the experiences that we very, very naturally have. Mm. Emotion, gut response, visceral reactions, yeah. urges, urges to dance that we cannot yeah. possibly cognitively explain, or yeah. at least maybe not cognitively explain, we cannot perhaps maybe not logically explain, yeah. or move to act. And so... Oh. Um, I always see logic as it has a place, right? It's like the brain is a good regulator. It yeah, regulates absolutely. really well. And it's most definitely. 
and so just getting the right the right shoe fits in a way going back to the shoes no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> or very intended uh, i always yeah. intend to pun <laughs> <laughs> those are the best ones i think yeah yeah i think and i i i've got this thing from our chat earlier um in the episode um where you were saying something around the mystery yeah the mystery of life and i think that also has to have its place like if we're going to live a balanced life we have to be able to to surrender and embrace mystery mm. yeah. as well as having the cognitive or like the, yeah the cognitive skills which involves critical thinking and reasoning yeah yeah i mean that makes me think of how we try so hard to control our actions and experiences so that they are logical and can try to lop off some of the what might be seen or feel like is less than is illogical it's the inner voice that says bad things to us or dirty things to us. Mm. And and I've not had an experience of trying to cut those parts out of me or help other people to cut them out of themselves that has been positive. Those yeah. experiences have always been, the positive experiences have always been around creating presence, space, yeah. compassion yes. towards the parts of us, even when they're seemingly illogical or they feel painful. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's quite a common thing to get into. So I just wanted to highlight that. Like at the, towards the start of a growth journey, it can you can internalize a lot of those voices like, oh, we have to cut this out or we've got to kill the ego or, you know, I don't want this anymore. Okay. Yeah. But it's not that it takes a surrendering. Awesome. It takes an embracing, right? Like the nature of change is that birth, the rebirth comes from the seeds of death, right? That's the wisdom traditions take on it. And I, but I think yeah. it's, it's true. You have to go through the, the dissolution, the death, you know, Yeah, awesome. you can't, you can't just pretend it's not there. That's a repression yeah most definitely and it allows you to uh, to engage in rebirth where the positive elements of what was once there can be reborn rather than yeah. losing the good stuff alongside the bad yeah yeah because yeah because yeah, there's always aspects of that that person or self voice that you might you know, okay, it might be extended and unhealthy at the time being, but I think you'll find if you go through the healing and the growing, yeah. that new self has some really um, good things within it. You know, it's like it's like I was talking um, a little earlier on to someone about um, secondary intent. You know, when we get angry, often yeah. it's like we're trying to 
prove something good to the people we love. Like I'm trustworthy. I can take care of myself. I, I got security here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. I look forward to, um, to having a, going to a gig with you sometime. I would love that. <laughs> that would be I, amazing. Uh, I'm really itching to be back in a live venue i think like yeah. i imagine you must be yeah yeah i think it's one of the hardest aspects of this whole time is that live music has stopped almost entirely yeah and i think we need it i really do it's but so i think personally it's been a real challenge for me because it's just it was my life i didn't really have anything outside of it um because it takes so much dedication yeah. And I think I think that's what we kind of pay musicians to do is be the people that don't have the boxes. You know, we go there to to see what life might be like if we can just open up that little bit more of ourselves, you know. Yeah. Uh, so are riding a wave of change. Yeah. And so like time and time again yeah. it's like it's really powerful. It's like it's really powerful to be working for a crowd having that experience that like you turn up you do your technical stuff and then while you're mixing the show you have to be mixing but you can also observe like people going through this yeah. these experiences yeah seems like a rare um like there are rarely moments of being able to receive that gift yeah or a gift of creating something that connects other people and to see it in the process of connecting yeah. a mass of people, whether it be a small venue or a, a massive stadium. Yeah. But to be able to see that, the vibrational quality of it, the massive effect of it yeah. is, has got to be really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting how different people turn up to different events. You know, it's like yeah. you have to find your audience and be a really authentic version of that person that your music speaks to, which essentially means just be authentic to yourself, make the music that lights you up. And and then, yeah, just interestingly, like Burning Man, for example, is an epitome of of a gathering of people that have the same... And you could even say like Glastonbury in the UK or most definitely Exit Festival most in Serbia is very much like dance people. They go there once a year. So it's a pilgrimage in a way. You know, they're convening with each other. And yeah, like I think modern society yeah, modern society is kind of give given up on that kind of Sunday. I mean, I know a lot of people are religious and they'll go to church every Sunday. Um Maybe I'm speaking from my own experience, but um, I feel like modern society is slightly less ritualistic than than before. Yeah, absolutely. And even and in many ways, there's not um, there are fewer there are really not many, if any, other than music. Yeah. Uh, for that bring everybody together and that can so mm. 
in many ways, it's sort of like a universal ritual, a universal pilgrimage. Yeah, it's interesting that those kind of those kind of festival um, events kind of exploded right at the time that the other one declined. So. Yeah, it's definitely, I think it's one of the seven necessities for human happiness, like that they did studies on is ritual. Yeah. So, ritual. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mm. believe that. Yeah. And I'm just with a, a tremendous amount of gratitude for you and yeah. for the invitation to join you today. Lovely. And to hear your experience, especially around music, I became really interested in. Um, and the, the sort of vibratory and limbic experiences of music more acutely in the last few weeks. So I was certainly looking forward to hearing your, your take on the impact of music, especially on um, the experiences that happen very reflexively. Yeah. And that can help us to understand the experiences of ourselves and other people who experience trauma in a more compassionate and present and open way so thank yeah. you uh, thanks for bringing that into this space it's really good it's really good really great thank you for joining me today thank you just immense amount of gratitude and uh, yeah, it's been so very good much. yeah so wonderful to see you yeah um if anyone wants to find you pierre where can they find you yeah, um, for so your coaching can, and whatnot. Probably the the quickest way is uh, by email at pierre at bravermancoaching.com. And so P I E R E at bravermancoaching.com. Lovely. Thank you. Um, I think we should listen to the bell one more time just to. Please. That's beautiful. Such a tiny bell. It is. Such a, a resonant sound. Yeah, it's so beautiful, isn't it? It's great. Thank you to Pierre for this wonderful conversation. And thank you to all of you for your time, attention, energy and love if you'd like to support the podcast we now have a Patreon the link will be below in the show notes and we also have a Facebook community called We Are The Light People where we continue these kind of conversations so if you're interested just send me a request thanks everyone and take care and see you next time